Hello, everyone. I'm Pam Carroll. Welcome to this episode of Employment Matters. Employment Matters is a podcast series brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest and most prestigious network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms in the world. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Juan Carlos from Santa Marina and Steta in Mexico, Jose Balta from Rodrigo, Elias, and Medrano from Peru, and Oscar Aiken from Correa in Chile. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. So happy to have you here because there's been quite a bit of changes coming in through the employment law arena, as I like to say, in um, your regions. So I'm happy to have the expertise here to impart on our listeners, employers and business owners, what they might need to know coming down the uh, this upcoming year. So I'm going to start it off with you, Juan Carlos. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. Well, in Mexico, we're living uh, quite an important changes in labor law. Just recently, this past May 1st, we had a new piece of legislation, which was passed by our local Congress, which is dramatically changing uh, the way we do labor union relations in our country. And the what it is important to know is that this is a, a legislative development that derives from an international treaty, which was actually just signed and ratified by Mexico and Canada, but it remains uh, not to be ratified yet by the United States, which is the USMCA agreement, which substitutes the NAFTA agreement. And one of the things is that in that particular treaty, Mexico was imposed uh, to level up their standards uh, for uh, union relationships. The original purpose of NAFTA was to build this consumer-based North America which didn't really happen because wages in Mexico remain quite low. We became a, a place of investments which were attracted because of the low wages. So that was being criticized by uh, unions in the north uh, who were putting pressure on the uh, US and Canadian governments and one of the ways they found for us to increase our wages is by imposing higher standards on the way we do union relationships. So with this background, we are now facing a number of new principles that we were not used to. We're imposed of uh, the principle of free of association, uh, which we had it, but it was simply not uh, respected. We are abide now by the principle of democracy at union organizations. Uh, which is also something that uh, we didn't, we had it, but we didn't work. We were not enforcing, and also by the principle of uh, uh, free collective bargaining. So right now we have situations like any agreement that is reached between a company and a union, I don't know, for agreeing on increases in wages, for example, needs to go. Uh, the, the agreement needs to be ratified by the majority of the employees which that increase applies to. So the employees now are more empowered if it has to be. Absolutely. They are a lot more empowered because the way they approve it is by secret vote. And that's where it comes very risky because when you are asking people to vote secretly, you never know what's going to be the result. Right. Going in blind. So what does a a company do in, in that situation to prepare themselves? Well, yeah, that's a good point. That's exactly the changes will come into effect in next year regionally. So with a lot of companies, we're getting ready for that. And we're planning our uh, bargaining strategies 
you know, thinking our budgets in a different way. It looks like we are, what we're doing is trying to follow this, the old rules and stick it into the new practices. So kind of forcing things a little bit, but we are um, working with our people, with our employees, which I think is the base of everything, you know, being really close to your workers, learning what their concerns are. So rather than waiting for a vote to come, so we start preparing. So the idea that this law or some of these laws were already in place, but just not being enforced, you know, as a company, what would you say is the, the level of compliance? You know, were there some that just set the bar high, it wasn't being enforced, but they have these in place? Or if you look at your client load, do you see that you have a lot of work to do now to get them ready for this next year? Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. And uh, first is to understand the new rules. That's the the first thing that we have to do. And many, many HR people is not really fully aware of the new rules. And based upon that, you need to make an analysis of your workforce. It is not the same uh, if we talk about a manufacturing facility or a services company, uh, or we have 100 employees or 5,000 employees. So all the strategies mm, will vary depending on the characteristics of the company or the geographic area in which you are at. Also, Mexico is different from north to south. So while we're thinking of that ge you know, geographical differences, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Jose's over there listening intently. And uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what's coming down for Peru uh, based on what Juan Carlos has said? You know, do you see any similarities with what's going on in your jurisdiction? In Peru, uh, the most important changes have been around two uh, issues in this year, 2019. Uh, number one, sexual, sexual harassment and the other one, uh, pay equity between men and women. Uh, regarding sexual harassment, I would say that we have a very comprehensive legislation. It imposes quite a few obligations, new obligations on the employer. But if I would have to single out the most important change regarding sexual harassment is that the employer no longer investigates the sexual harassment claims. It is a special committee that is in, composed by both the employer representatives and the employee representatives. So this uh, committee is, includes four people, two of them designated by the employer, one man, one woman, and the other two uh, people are uh, elected by the employees in a universal, secret, uh, and direct vote one of them being a, wo a woman and one of them being a man. So this special committee, we uh, will do all the research. At the end, the employer will be uh, the one in charge of uh, taking any disciplinary actions against the employee. But uh, it is a special committee. So the employer has lost control on the research and investigation of uh, sexual harassment. So how long is that uh, committee in place? Is it just by incident or by investigation or is it I'm made up of a committee that stands at the ready should something like this come up? Usually this committee should be in force for one year, two years, three years. It all depends on the rules enacted by each employer. It's not uh, in force for each individual instance of uh, sexual harassment. I would say that this is the most important aspect of the new piece of legislation which is rather new. The new regulations were enacted at the end of uh, 
July of this year. The other piece of legislation, which is quite important, in my view, the most important piece of legislation for the last 30 or 40 years relates to pay equity. In our jurisdictions in Latin America, in most countries around the world, usually there is this rule that if you perform the same job, you're entitled to the same salary. So, for instance, if you are an engineer, you usually earn the same amount of money as other engineer. Of course, we have some a few exceptions related to seniority, etc. But in Peru, we have taken things a little bit further. In Peru, you also have to say to earn the same salary if you perform work of equal value. Maybe they are completely different jobs, like an electrician and a secretary, or the mailman and the social worker. And it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman anymore. Uh, as long as your position has a value equal to the other position, you will be entitled to the same salary. So we have two different rules in Peru, and that, of course, is a quite an important change in my country. So with, with those changes coming you know, into play, what are the things that your clients need to know? Because this uh, both sexual harassment and pay equity obligations involved all the people in the workplace, if you, the employers do not comply with this uh, set of obligations, the fines to be imposed by our labor inspection uh, agency will be very hard. But not only that, it is also important uh, to know that the employees have the right to make a claim for unpaid salaries for the next four years, counted as from that date in which the employees ends his or her employment relationship. At the end, what our clients need to know is that in both cases, they need to issue lots and lots of documents to protect uh, them, not only to comply with these new pieces of legislation, but to protect them from uh, future uh, claims, both in the judicial area and in the labor inspection area. Oscar, how about in uh, Chile? I, I, yeah, before jumping into Chile, uh, um, I am curious, Pepe, to understand how and who determines if two jobs have the same value, because that's to me, seems very subjective. Yes, the law says that the employer needs to put some value in each job position following whatever objective and neutral method the employer chooses to follow. In the human resources area, there's lots of methods to put a value to certain job position. And of course, I fully agree with you. And that can be challenged by, by the labor authority or by employee? Absolutely, yes, yeah. that can be challenged. That's going to be a picnic. Yes. <laughs> and this is why I told you, uh, Oscar, that in my view, this is one of the most important pieces of legislation in Peru for the last 30 or 40 years. This will change everything. Thank you, Pepe. That was very interesting. Okay, let's uh, turn to Chile, if I may. I would like to split this into two categories. We have passed already in the last year or so, maybe a little bit more, three uh, smaller pieces of legislation 
which are interesting, but uh, I don't think that are too uh, relevant. And I will spend most of most of the rest of the time talking about three bills that are currently in the Congress that are really high caliber. So the first three that has been approved already are uh, quite interesting. One is a law uh, obliging companies employing more than 100 employees to employ disabled persons. The law has a kind of um, probation period whereby an employee may actually hire the disabled employee or hire a contractor who employs disabled employee or else make a contribution to a nonprofit organization taking care of disabled employees. So you have, you know, the actual compliance and a uh, in lieu of compliance. Like a secondary role. Secondary role. But they forgot a detail there. Because in our firm, for example, we, uh, since some years ago, prior to this legislation, we were using disabled people for some uh, simple jobs. And the critical issue is the following. Most of these disabled employees, particularly children with Down's syndrome, these persons typically are enrolled under the social security of their parents. The moment they become full-fledged employees, they can no longer be enrolled in their parents' social security and they have to enroll through their own social security. And because of their condition and the type of job they do, their contribution to social security will be rather low, so they will lose coverage. That means that the parents of these people will not allow them to take these jobs and the employers are not able to comply. This has been put forward to the authority and they're probably going to make a change. Actually, the second piece of legislation I'm going to mention, this has been addressed specifically. And this second piece of legislation is a uh, law regarding the employment contract of students. For students, this law has a number of flexible arrangements for uh, working hours that will be make this uh, work contract more compatible with its with studies. You know, the, these employees may take time to take to, to attend to classes, to take the test. And very importantly, it has the ability of these employees to either enroll in the Social Security on their own or keep the enrollment in the Social Security of their parents. Typically, students okay. will have that. So that has been checked, but they forgot to do it in the first uh, piece of legislation. But according to some informal conversation with some, some local authorities, um, they realize they, they, they have a problem. They'll, they'll go back and, and fix this because otherwise the, the compliance and the intent of the law of, of hiring disabled uh, persons will not work. A third piece of legislation that was interesting, uh, no, not terribly critical, uh, deals with the uh, employment contract for a particular job or task. Under Chilean law, this particular type of contract, when you used to finish the job, the employee was able to be laid off with no payment of severance. And that was deemed a little bit unfair. So what they did is that they structured a severance, which is pretty much calculated pro rata to the standard severance an employee with an indefinite employment contract will have. So. When you hire one of these uh, individuals for a job or a specific task and you terminate them, you will have to pay a small severance, which is 
sort of pro rata uh, to what an employee otherwise under indefinite term contract will receive. So that will suffice, you know, this little uh, three pieces of legislation, interesting, not terribly material, um, one with a flaw that probably will be fixed. Now it's still good to know for employers, but some of the more significant ones that yeah, you have. Now, to- the next three are complicated. Okay. Are complicated because it will impose, in one case, some additional cost to the employers. In other case, uh, in addition to cost, trouble. The first one is piece of legislation being discussed and has been approved. This is probably one of the first that going to uh, get through the Congress. It's called the Universal Daycare Law. Presently in Chile, employers employing 20 or more women has to provide or else pay for daycare for children under two years old, which is fine, but it creates a ground for discrimination against women. Because the company that has 19 uh, uh, women, it will not hire that woman number 20 will hire a man. What is being proposed is A, to get rid of the 20 number. So anyone employing women will have to deal with this. And also will apply basically to employees having children below two years old, male or female. So we will be equal in terms of the cost for the employer. This will be paid by a, a social contribution borne by the employer that will go to the Solidarity Fund. They love the Solidarity Funds. That should work. I think it's, it's a fair law, you know, a little bit cost for here or there, but I think this is something that was in a way overdue. I mean, this, this was a, an unfair burden on women. So that's some additional cost, but should not drive anyone out of business, I believe. The next one is the pension reform. This is a major piece of legislation with a lot of impact, not only in labor and employment law, because our pension system is based on personal savings. This has broad impact into the economy itself. And this has been highly politicized, highly debated on ideological basis. What we have so far is that the employee contribute 10% of their income towards a pension fund. This pension fund belongs to themselves. This is not pay-as-you-go system. These funds are administered by a professional pension fund administrator called the AFP. And they have done a pretty good job in terms of obtaining good returns and profitability. However, the pension, typically of the more poor people, have been low much lower than the expectations. And the reason for this has been at least on three grounds. A, many people don't contribute over the lifetime, particularly women. They have what we call social security lagoons. Women get out of the uh, labor market for periods, and those periods become uh, a vacuum period with no contributions. Two, women have a retirement age younger than men. They retire at 60. Wow. Uh, as opposed to us who retire at 65. But get what? The life expectancy of women is way much higher than men. So just simple mathematics, and women get much lower pensions, which is, of course, unfair. So we need need to, uh, I mean, the government and, and the past government as well, everybody is in agreement 
that we need to that you need to tweak, tweak this, this a little. Yeah. And the problem is that instead of, I mean, they, they are succeeding on this a little bit, but instead of really trying to fix the problem, which is the labor market, which is retirement ages, there's been a lot of debate to get rid of the AFP system, which is extremely good because all this money is, gets reinvested into the economy. This is a very good circle. So, of course, the left wing, they want to go to a pay-as-you-go, and they, they get they want to distribute all this money that is, they, they claim that is money of the AFP, it's money of each individual, it's just like your bank account. And so the government has been struggling with this because our administration, which is right-wing, has pro-business, does not have majority in the Congress. So what they have done here is they are increasing the pension contribution, 4%. But as a political exchange for votes, they are devising a mechanism where this additional 4% still becomes the property of the employees, not going to a fund of the government, but it's not administered by a AFP, which is nonsense, but they have to give that concession. And it's administered by an entity. And of course, that entity will have to hire a professional fund administration. The Black Rocks, you know, <laughs> they have to pay these people anyway. And the AFP have all these costs embedded already. So it would much be much more efficient for the AFP to continue to administer this 4% because they already have the, the infrastructure the so that is being discussed. The government last week reported that it's going well. So we'll have this additional 4% contribution funded by the employer. In the long run, whether it's funded by the employer or the employee, it will uh, move towards the salary in, in the long term. But that will improve pensions. That will mean more savings country-wise because this money has been saved and is used for funding all kind of... Uh, uh, investments that are authorized by law that are, you know, very conservative. So as a company, what are you advising your clients? There is not to this much the, the, the employers can do. The advice to the client is watch out. It's going to be a 4% increase on your pocket. If you are, for example, we have engineering contractors that do proposals for long-term contracts and they need to factor in labor costs. And with this piece of legislation, what we are telling our guys is, in your tenders, be careful, insert a change in law provision, make the uh, principal aware that this legislation is passed, you know, you, your projection of costs may be significantly affected. Last but not least, this is the most terrible one. I'm going to be short on this one. Two pieces of legislation. Government passing a flexibility law, making compatible work and family and personal life and uh, trying to move from a, a fixed working hours towards a monthly bag of hours that employee and employer can agree to distribute differently. The employee may work four days instead of five and may, you know, pack more hours in certain periods and, and have a more relaxed day. So now there's very friendly oriented, no problem. Communist Party started doing some mathematics and said, you know, the uh, legislation being passed by the government, if you add up and, and, and subtract it, the, the really, you may end up with a 14 hour per week. And so we'll, they pass a, a law in parallel with 
40 hours per week, fixed, no flexibility, no agreement. It's just 40 this hours. This is what it is, yeah. Including in it, because the other one excludes the meal time. So the 40 hours really becomes 35 hours. I went th- with 35 hours to fake silly and the country doesn't function. And this, of course, got a lot of populist support because everybody wants to work 35 hours instead of 45, which we work now. Yeah, I, I think something like that same. goes across all cultures. It doesn't, you know, sure. it's kind of like a universal. I mean, we have these two pieces of legislation now in the Congress, a lot of political debate with very little technical support from the far left. And everybody is really afraid what was going to be the uh, final result. Uh, but the companies, there's nothing they can do for the time being. Sit and wait. Sit and wait. Sit and wait. Cross the fingers, most importantly. Juan Carlos, listening to what Oscar said, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what the clients have uh, ahead of them, you know, what would some of your advisement be? Well, it, it, it sounds scary. I mean, you have to do a lot of lobbying, I guess. Uh, organized employer associations should have a, a voice in Congress. Was uh, this, you know, re- reduction of the uh, working time to 35 hours uh, with the same economic burden puts you in a lower competitive position uh, worldwide. Uh, I know in France, there's been a number of efforts to continue reducing the working hours, but I think the type of work that you, people in France is looking forward to perform is different, has a different value added than sometimes the work that we can do in Latin America. So I think organized employers should be really a lot more influential to avoid that kind of things happening. Because that builds a precedent for other countries too. Pepe? What Oscar said is very, very interesting, especially for us Peruvians, because our pension system is really a copy of the Chilean pension system. It is a system based on contribution uh, exclusively by the employee. The employer does not contribute. The employer pays social security, which is different, and is exactly 10% uh, plus commissions uh, paid by the uh, employee. For employees earning minimum wage or low salaries, this is quite a lot. It is very difficult to increase than 10%, but I can see that they have devised this system according to which, for the very first time, the employer contributes uh, in the pension system. So it's a dual contribution, 10% by the employee, 4% by the employer, and that is quite a lot of money. I understand why uh, that happened in Chile, uh, and that could very easily be exported to Peru. The key part is that this money continues to be employee money. We are, we are not, the government is adamant that we are not going back to pay as you go because that, that system is broken in every country in the world. Our system does not put any financial burden on the, on the state, except for some solidarity funds for the, more, for, the, for the people that are really poor, they get just as a minimum pension, which is manageable. And uh, addressing Juan Carlos' comments, I mean, there is a lot of action by employers' organization, but these are the employers' organizations. This is the rich, the capitalism against the street. It's a very delicate. We have all these manifestations in the streets, you know, the call by the Communist Party pushing for working 35 hours and earn the same, which, of course, it doesn't work. 
So, you know, you've awakened us all on this topic. I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your expertise with us. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today for another episode of Employment Matters. If you are interested in additional hot topics or as employers in the region, you have a need to know more on a particular topic, please reach out to me at pam at ela.law. And for more information about any of our members here who have shared their expertise, you can find information on their uh, services and uh, expertise in their region at ela.law. On behalf of the ELA, I'm Pam Carroll. Have a great day.